Hello and welcome to Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. I'm Maureen Painter. I'm here today with individuals from the Center for Medicare Advocacy, and we are doing an alert related to the Build Back Better bill um, and some of the provisions related to our long-term care settings. Uh, I'd like to introduce Toby Edelman and Cinnamon St. John. Um, welcome. I don't know if you want to give a little introduction and let us know who you are and um, why you're joining us today. All right, thank you. This is Toby. Thank you for inviting us to this podcast today. Um, the Center for Medicare Advocacy is a, a national public interest law organization based in Connecticut. And what we focus on is getting fair access to Medicare coverage for older people and people with disabilities. And one of the areas where we focus a lot of attention is nursing homes. And that's what I work on primarily is nursing home issues. Great. And hello, I'm Cinnamon St. John. I am the Chiplin Medicare and Health Policy Fellow at the Center for Medicare Ad Advocacy. And why am I here? I'm here both as someone who wants to change policy to help older adults in nursing homes. And I'm also here as a daughter who, you know, not too long ago, lost her own mother to Alzheimer's and was looking at nursing home facilities before the pandemic as a potential option because it's a tough disease. So those two combined have really ignited my passion for resident rights. And I'm excited to join you today, Maraid. Awesome. Thank you very much. Um, so welcome to you both. And you know, I'm hoping that this really can be a conversation. Every time I, I talk with you guys, I learn so much. We have such um, great dialogue that I, I really felt that it would be important for the individuals listening to this podcast to be able to have um, some of the information that we share with each other when they're making decisions or thinking about how they want to um, make change in the communities in which they live, in the nursing homes they live in, or where they have loved ones, um, or they're just like us advocates that want to see change in our long-term care settings so that um, when we need it, we're happy with the choices that we have. So. Thank you for joining me today. Um, I don't know if we can jump right in and talk about these provisions, what they are, and why they're so important. Which one? Well, how, how about we cover what these provisions are? So in the Build Back Better Act, there are seven provisions that impact nursing homes. And one thing we saw going into COVID and, and why it spread was felt so deeply was because there was not one issue that was the problem. It, it was a multi-layered issue that grew bigger. It was exa exacerbated by COVID. So what these seven provisions do is essentially attack the problem from different layers, from different areas, different angles. And, you know, it's a multi-pronged approach to a multi-pronged problem. Would you like me to go through the provisions real quickly, or do you have that covered? No, I would love that, but I love what you just said, the piece about a multi-pronged approach for a multi-pronged mm -hmm. um, problem. problem. You're exactly right. But yes, if you'd like to, you know, sort of do an overview of the of the seven, that would be amazing. Very, very quickly. Um, so the first one uh, approaches the nursing home issue as far as ensuring that there's accountability and 
reliability and accuracy. So the first nursing home provision would improve accuracy and reliability for nursing home data. So it specifically would validate measures and data and information regarding resident assessment data and direct care staffing information. And crucially for facilities that reported inaccurate information, they would eventually face financial penalties. Um, they would get a reduction in their payment rates by two percentage points. So this is important because Accurate and reliable data is critical to assessing quality of care, clinical outcomes, and staffing. The second provision would ensure accurate information of cost reportings. So by it would require annual auditing of the Medicare cost reports that skilled nursing facilities submit to CMS. And this is important because we need to guarantee where our tax dollars uh, go and how they're spent appropriately. And Toby can talk a lot about this a little later on, but financial accountability is crucial. The third provision uh, would make improvements to survey and enforcement practices. So the goal here would be to improve existing surveys and enforcement processes to increase compliance with the skilled nursing facility requirements of participation. Um, and this would be done by conducting reviews and identifying improvement plans as needed. Uh, so let's move on to the fourth provision. And this was a big one and, and also a big disappointment, which was establishing minimum staffing for nursing homes. So this would, provision would require a study to be conducted to, to determine the appropriate levels of staffing for registered nurses, licensed practical nurses, certified nursing assistants, and these surveys in the provision would re be repeated approximately every five years. So all of that is great because we haven't had a survey like this since 2001. So right now, when we say 4.1 nursing hours per resident per day, we're actually looking at 20-year-old figures. And what we do know is people are getting older and their acuity levels in nursing homes is getting worse, it's getting higher. So realistically, that number isn't completely accurate. So it's good to have strong data. What is disappointing was that in the house version, this was required to have CMS translate those recommendations that come from the survey into regulations. So there would actually be an action taken from the data that we found out. But unfortunately, that was taken out. On to the fifth provision. This would require nursing homes to have a registered nurse staff 24 hours per day, seven days a week. And that's great. This, is, this provision is important because the data shows that more nurses, more RN nurses on staff actually save lives. And we've seen that in COVID. You know, studies show that when you have more RN hours, you actually have fewer deaths and fewer cases of COVID in these facilities. So moving on to the last two provisions, these are actually included in the Senate version that was just released a couple of weeks ago, maybe a week and a half. So the sixth provision would ensure that the number of nursing facilities participating in a special focused facility or SFF program is not less than 3.5% of all facilities. So for just to make sure we all understand, an SFF, which Honestly, I have a hard time saying quickly, uh, is a federally mandated initiative that addresses a pattern of persistent problems in nursing homes through enhanced oversight with the goal that this, these really poor performers stop their really poor performance. Um, and the 3.5%, what that means is right now, 
CMS has identified about like 88 facilities, so one to two per state that are really bottom of the barrel. This would bump that up to about 550 facilities because, you know, we have what over 15,600 facilities in the nation. And finally, moving on to the seventh provision. Um, this would, and it's the biggest provision as far as when, the money that's attached to it, $800 million, would go to grant funding to states, and it would allow then sub-grantees the money essentially to go trickle down to the facilities. And the money would go to a minimum of two of three activities. The first one would provide wage or benefit enhancements to eligible staff who care for residents. And one thing I think this would do is help combat the wage war that we've heard so much about. The second activity is to improve and develop training and career development opportunities for eligible staff, including training for infection control. And the third one is expand staffing uh, as, as a way to increase staff ratios. Um, so again, this is broad. You pick two of the three minimum, you could do all three, but it's really choose your own adventure with the money that you get. So there we go. Thank you so much, and that's fantastic. That's exactly, I think, what people need to know and understand, um, sort of what is, how it'll impact, and why it's in there. I, I think we've heard a lot about, you know, these are new provisions, new things. One of the things you talked about was poor performers, accountability, um, and we often hear, well, wasn't this because of the pandemic? Won't things just go back and, and, and be resolved once the pandemic's I disagree with that. I think these are longstanding problems that have been there related to staffing, accountability, um, just making sure that poor performers are held to the same level as our, our high performers. We do have a lot of high performers out there, but I think everybody should be performing at that level. So I don't know if either of you can talk a little bit about, do you think this is just related to the pandemic? Um, what will we see post-pandemic if that's ever going to happen, if we actually get to a post-pandemic um, place? But why it's important that these are in now, stay in now while there's attention on this. I think absolutely these are longstanding problems, as Cinnamon explained so beautifully. The staffing issues have been uh Perennial. We hear about them year after year, decade after decade, that staff, they're not enough staff, they're not enough professional staff, they're not enough paraprofessional staff, we need more staff. So that has been a problem since, since the 80s, if not before, that we don't have enough staff. And the, the issue of oversight of facilities has also been something that the General Accounting Office and the Inspector General have written reports about for decades, about the very poor and overly tolerant enforcement system. So yes, we want high standards of care. We want a survey process that determines whether facilities are actually meeting those standards of care. And then we want an enforcement system that says you're not and there's a consequence to you. Uh, it's really important not just to have good standards, but to have them meaningfully enforced. And we're, we're really lacking that now because at present, almost everything in the federal enforcement system is called no harm. And if there's no harm, almost nothing happens. So we, we, need, to, we need to change that. And that's what these provisions do, things that we have talked about for years. They're very, very important interrelated provisions. 
So I'd like to peel back one layer and ask you, Toby, a question. And 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 actually, Mairead, I mean, this is for both of you. I submit that these are definitely longstanding issues, but I think it's mixed because getting at, you know, when we talk about cost reports and ensuring that nursing homes submit accurate data, let's talk about ownership. Because I think that the landscape of ownership, which is, this is really what we're trying to get to. We're trying to have these provisions get to some underlying problems. Ownership is an underlying problem, but I think it's been bubbling up as a huge problem, like maybe in the last decade or so. Toby, you've done so much work around this. What are your thoughts about that? Well, the ownership is getting to be a very serious problem that's getting more attention than it has in the past. The problem is that there's an obligation for all facilities to be licensed. They're licensed by the state. But we have so many examples of facilities or owners being denied a license for poor care, but nevertheless operating those facilities for years and years on end and getting public reimbursement. So the state standards are very limited and they're limited for a lot of reasons. I mean, the facilities do everything they can to hide who the actual owners are. We've had some terrible, terrible examples of of poor quality owners coming up with a new name, a new corporation, and they're treated as brand new people given opportunities to run facilities when their records have been terrible. So we have very inadequate state standards and certainly inadequate enforcement. If there are good standards for what owners should be, who who is eligible to be an owner, they're just mocked. Uh, there's too much going on where people who have no business running facilities are getting more and more facilities. So there's been public attention recently to the private equity ownership problem, but it's broader than that. It's a lot of for-profit owners, uh, individually owned corporations or individually owned sets of people who uh, have lots of examples of owners uh, coming up with new names, new new classifications, but they're really the same people and they're getting more and more facilities. And, the, and our public systems are not really equipped at this point to deal adequately with them. We need to do that. We need to have better systems and better enforcement of those systems. Marie, what do you think seeing in Connecticut? I totally what agree. What have you seen? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree and feel like we have tried to have a higher level of accountability here. To Toby's point, um, these large financial corporations coming in, um, having sort of that shell game where whose name is on it. The other challenge that we've had is when we have a poor performer or someone where they've held accountability, they move the percentage of the corporation out of their name to a family member. Mm -hmm. So you can't bar a family member. That family member doesn't have any record, a wife, a child, a brother, a sister, and they shift the percentages of ownership, which allows them to continue to um, keep their business and keep running. And it, it takes away the accountability that otherwise the state is trying. I think here we have had um, a good relationship between our office, the Department of Social Services and the Department of Public Health, talking about which owners we see as having the most challenges when there's egregious cases, having that accountability, but then they just change ownership um, and shift that. I kind of feel like they're always a step ahead of us in that way. So that I think is really, really challenging and they continue to benefit from state and federal dollars when 
um, you know, we don't want them to. Um, I also see that we have a difference. We have for profits that are large corporations, and then we have the small mom and pops. And I think when we really started to see this shift is when we saw that dynamic change from family-owned small mom and pop nursing homes throughout the country moved to a business model of corporations. And I've said very publicly, um, as we've had a shift here in Connecticut and nursing homes close, and they're looking at right size and rebalancing of the system. I have been pretty public in saying I would rather see our very large um, homes of 200 beds, 300 beds owned by companies outside of the state be the ones that downsized versus the smaller mom and pops that are scattered throughout our state in communities where they're the owners are members of our communities. We have better accountability. They have to see us in stop and shop. They have to um, be able to be a part of the public and have that accountability, both from you're taking care of a loved one or someone I know, and you're responsible for that. And that's where we see better outcomes. When the 60 to 90 bed homes, even 120 scattered throughout our communities where you have people in your communities working, that know the residents, you have people managing, have people um, supporting them who are part of. So that's why I think um, we need to focus there. And honestly, Marita, I'm so glad that you brought that up because when we, I, I was thinking we need a new term because, uh, you know, for these mom and pops, because yes, they're for profit, but I did a, a report that CMA published uh, probably like February of 2021, Geography is Not Destiny. And in that I interviewed nursing home administrators around the country, you know, the best kind of the best and worst in the same town or city to, to compare their standards. But, you know, I spoke to some administrators who said, you know, this is this is a one of only a few, a handful of nursing facilities that have been in a family for generations. You know, it's a very personal experience. It's a personal enterprise, you know, compared to these conglomerates that own over 150 facilities around the nation. It's it's just not really fair to clump them up into, into one into one grouping. I agree. And I think the experience is very different. When there is a significant issue or concern in a building where the owner is the administrator or it's family run, and I call, talk with them, the response is different. I can they are very responsive and they're invested, right? It's their reputation. They know that people know who they are and they're invested in their community. And that makes that makes a huge difference, making sure that these homes are part of our communities at large and that we see the people living there as part of our community. And that just because they're receiving their long-term services and supports in that setting doesn't change their investment or their participation in our our communities and wanting to um, make sure that there's a high quality of care as we would for anybody that lived in our community. And, and with the bigger owned conglomerates, you know, a lot of these decisions are made off-site. They don't see the residents in person. Yes. The decisions are made through an Excel spreadsheet and they are literally numbers on a line, you know, row 23. That shouldn't be how decisions are truly made when when a vulnerable population's health is at stake. Absolutely. And the decision making. So we'll hear from those administrators or the administration in the building. Oh, that decision is made at corporate. Corporate right. is such and such state. I've right. got to send it up the, the chain and, and they don't have the ability. They are a figurehead. They make decisions in the building day to day. 
but the larger policy decisions they are not able to um, be as involved in. So to that point, I think that this is not new as we have, I'm going to draw us back to build back better because I know <laughs> with all of us, we can, go we can up talk forever. And, um, and we're very passionate about it, but that these, um, these issues to that point are not new. I think um, for any of us that have been working in advocating in this arena for a long time, have seen this sort of coming, right? It was like this train that was moving forward and it was slow, but it was getting here and now it's here. What do you think the effect of these provisions could be long-term if, if they do pass in this way? And, and how can we see a difference and what can people be looking for um, from them? Well, well, you uh, you threw me for a loop there because with what Manchin has come out and said how you know he's not going to support the Build Back Better Act, I think what's been going through my mind is what happens if it doesn't pass? What happens if we do not get these provisions this year? And I think there's a winner category and a loser category. You know, the winners, the industry, the big conglomerate owners of nursing homes that don't need the accountability, who continue with the cycle of, please give us more money, but we're not going to be accountable for how we use it. You know, the staff, those, the losers are those without the power, the financial power, the political power, the residents, and the staff. And so that's, and maybe I'm just a pessimist. Maybe I'm just looking at it for what doesn't happen. I think with all the energy and we have to think that this is going to pass, right? That there's, they're going to keep, I, I'll be the optimist and say, okay, sell me this one, please. That's why we're doing this today. I hope that people that feel really strongly about this and know that these provisions, as well as many other sections of the Build Back Better, which I'll put our own plug in under HCBS, it says there must be a community yeah. ombudsman program, which I feel very strongly about, that those are individuals Absolutely. that- you know, just because they're choosing to use their um, services or receive their services in a different setting doesn't mean they don't need advocacy. So I think there's a lot in Build Back Better that um, I'm thankful that our representatives um, nationally have put all of this time and energy into. There's a reason it's gotten this level and that there is the financial commitment in it. And we can't just let it stop here. And I think until people hear from the individuals that they serve, they don't understand how important, or I think they understand how important, but the energy behind it. Um, what do you think, Toby? I agree completely. I think we we have to keep fighting until we can get these provisions passed because they will make all the difference in the world for the, for the residents who live in, in these nursing homes and for their families who have struggled but, as well during the pandemic. But Toby, where do yes. you stand? Are you an optimist or pessimist? <laughs> Oh, I have to be an optimist. I couldn't be doing this for almost 45 years if I were a pessimist because I would have given up long ago. Um, we've got, we've just got to keep going and, and saying these things are important and this is why, and you need to do it, Congress. You just must do it. And all right. And what? for the people, right? I think that anyone, if you if you feel strongly about this and you have a senator that is not supporting the bill. Right. So it passed in Congress. And if you have a senator that has not supported this bill, what do you do now? Right. This is your opportunity. Make those calls. Tell them your stories. Let them know why this is so important, um, that this is a section that can't be cut because it's the people. Um, everyone should have received the book protecting them to death at this point that loved ones, caregivers, residents participated in making um, to demonstrate and show what happens when 
we don't have the same level of accountability when things aren't, we don't have the oversight. And so I think calling, cueing people to, to read that book, to look at it, sharing your stories, um, what other ways can people participate and make sure that their senators understand how extremely important this is? have to let them know this should not be a partisan issue. I mean, Republicans and Democrats alike and independents live in nursing homes and have relatives in nursing homes. This is a matter of our humanity, and we, we need to make these provisions reality. We just have to do it. You know, I spent some time on uh, the Senate Aging Committee, and one thing that really surprised me and what I learned was that constituency is currency. Mm-hmm. The, the voice of the people in everyone's state is so much more powerful than you could even imagine. This is what senators listen to. The people who live in my district, in my state, what are they saying and what do they want? So yes, Mairead, they should call. But I think they should also put their, their thumb on the public pressure because the book is amazing. It's a beautiful book and it's so, so moving. But what does someone do who maybe doesn't have a huge grassroots movement around them, who's just sitting at home and sees their family member in a nursing home and it's just like, this has to stop and these provisions need to be passed. Well, they use their voice. They call the, they call the office of the senator, but not only that, they write. It doesn't have to be super eloquent, but write letters to the editor. Reach out to your newspapers because honestly, the people, the senators, they have people working for them that mine the newspapers and they try to keep their, you know, they try to keep their eye on what's happening in the state. Get your voice out there and everyone's voice matters so much more. And if we can get multiple people to do this, then our voices are amplified. And at some point they cannot turn away. I totally agree. And I think we're here today because of some of that unintended silver lining of the pandemic. I don't think anyone had any idea, not anyone, I think people had an idea. I don't think there was um, as much attention or focus on our long-term care communities, on what happened in long-term care and the people, how many people were really impacted until the pandemic. And those news stories, we had amazing news stories and amazing coverage of what was happening, who was impacted and how they were impacted. And my concern is a little bit that that has fallen off as we've seen a shift and a change and progression, right? In a positive way. Um, Thankfully, we have less people dying currently in our long-term care communities and with the vaccines and things moving forward, we're in a better place today. However, that doesn't mean that overall we're in a better place and that we don't need these provisions. I think it's even more crucial due to the fact that people have lived through things and had these experiences. And if we turn our backs now on something that we had a light shown on and people know is there, and now we don't address it and move forward, shame on us as a country for not correcting these things that have really been highlighted. Ditto. <laughs> the time is now. Now. It is. Got to get it done. I agree. Absolutely. This, you know, this is the time. Um, so I'm going to make a plead out plead all of you to please um, reach out and call your senator's office, whether you're here in Connecticut or across the country. This is, as Toby said, this is not a partisan issue. This affects all people uh, with all types of needs and someday could 
very well affect you. Um, none of us know what our um, destiny holds and, and how we might be impacted. And I want to ensure that we have the best long-term care system possible. Um, I've joked for years that, you know, people say, oh, well, you'll never go into a nursing home. I probably will. And I want a nursing home because I like a party and I like people <laughs> around. And so I will probably choose some long-term care setting where there is a party, where it's a happy caring environment where I feel well supported and I'm able to continue to reach my goals. And that's what I hope for all of the people um, that are living in long-term care, that they're still able to set goals, meet their goals and live a high quality life. Um, so anyone out there, please, if you need information on how to contact um, your Senator's office, um, do you guys have recommendations on how to connect people to who their local um, Senators are? For me, it's not really. I mean, I just I just get online and I Google the name of the senator and, you know, um, their website, their Web page pops up and there's usually a box that says contact us and there'll be a phone number for their D.C. office and a, the phone number for their local office. Um, tell me, what do you think as far as like reaching out to the local office of the senator versus D.C.? I'm partial to D.C. just because that's kind of where the senator's their home bases. Um, what do you think? I think both would probably could send the same note to both or get in touch with both. Um, I, I agree with you that what the senators do is really focus a lot on what's going on locally. So if there's information in the local newspaper, they pick it up. They know about that. Uh, it's not just the national press, but yeah. Any, when anyway. you're, when you're, I'm so sorry, but when you're talking about like both or maybe send a note to both, I think what's also really important is to say where you're calling from in the state. You know, because there is a difference between someone who doesn't live in the state, but is just calling because they know, you know, they're not in West Virginia, but they know they need some West Virginia support. That's not going to that's not going to really hold the weight. And actually, you had in what was it in your Voices 2020 um, representative Cook gave some really great advice about how personal stories really sell. So tell them where you're from in the state and make it personal. Absolutely. And um, if there's other questions, we've also had great support from AARP in connecting individuals with their um, representatives at a state and federal level. So if you have a local AARP office, asking them for support, um, asking them how to connect, reaching out to your ombudsman's office. Um, and again, Google, um, any kind of search engine, they can um, look that up. That's what, honestly, that's what I do as well a lot. I'll put in <laughs> Um, where I am, what I'm looking for, and it does pop up. Uh, people from across the country, I know in Connecticut, we use it a lot, our website. We have an advocacy page on the state long-term care ombudsman um, website. And I'll also ask that they put a connection up there. I know we help link people because we're often, we ask people a lot to make these kind of calls and connections and share their stories. So I'll try to make sure there's as much information as possible available on our website. So, wow. Thank you both Great information. so much. Um, this was a fantastic conversation. Any last comments before we wrap up? No, I think you covered it. Thank you so much for having us. This has been a fun conversation. Absolutely. Um, always great to chat with you and we will talk to you soon. Again, for everybody out there, this is Your Care, Your Rights, Your Voice. Please continue to um, listen to this podcast anywhere you get your podcasts and I will talk to you soon.